Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Okay, so just a little quick review of some of the things we've been looking at. First of all, uh, we said last week that oftentimes individuals have been in the dark regarding the fullness of the Spirit. When we looked at Acts chapter 9 or so, uh, or 19, we found that Uh, Paul had encountered some believers who did not know anything about the Spirit of God. So the idea that there's been misunderstanding about the working of God's Spirit and His indwelling presence is something that has been misunderstood as we read about it in Scripture. But for us today, there ought not to be so much misunderstanding. Why? Because Yeshua taught us about the Spirit of God. John and Luke and the book of Acts that Luke wrote focuses a tremendous amount of attention on the, on the Spirit of God. In fact, when I was counting some years ago, I think you could actually uh, see one reference to the Spirit of God in every chapter of Luke and the book of Acts. I mean, some chapters, the Spirit of God is made reference to three or four times. If we spread it out, it would come up that the Spirit of God is made reference to in just about each one of those chapters or every other chapter. And I always was struck by that with regard to Luke because Luke was a physician. And physicians are empiricists. They're people that were, would always look for the tangible, the experiential, the identifiable. So I'm very much struck by the fact that Luke was interested in the supernatural, the working of God's spirit. You wouldn't think that doctors or detectives that are sort of gripped by what they can actually see would be you know, particularly attentive to this. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe because Luke so focused on what was empirical that when that which was not empirical but nevertheless real, what made a major impact on him. And so he writes a great deal about the work of the Spirit. And of course, Paul in his letters does, does the same. So uh, we also saw not only this, but that, the full, that Paul teaches on the Spirit and that we learn some things about the Spirit of God that we need to have straight. I mean, I've talked to some people in our congregation, and I'm telling you, we don't have this straight. And we need to have this straight because this is what God's Word teaches us. So we don't want to be heretics. We want to be orthodox in our understanding of what the Word of God teaches. And the Word of God teaches the Spirit of God is a person. Not only is He a person, and we've talked about this, but He's a divine person. When uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 had said they would give a certain portion of their proceeds to the body of Messiah. They held back some of them and Peter says to them, you have, why have you lied? You have not lied to men, 
You have lied to God. He said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you have not lied to men, you have lied to God. Now, I'm not saying we can understand all of these dynamics. I'm only saying we need to affirm all that is taught. If you take the time, for example, to read Calvin's Institutes, which I find to be some very beautiful writing, perhaps the greatest writing of the Reformation period, and writing that is just permeated and saturated with Scripture. And when you consider these writers back in the 16th century or so, didn't have all the concordances, didn't have all of the background information, didn't have the Internet These men were so absorbed with the Word of God, they didn't need any of that stuff. And they could just quote verbatim right from not only the Scriptures, but also from other writers of previous generations and centuries. But Calvin says a very interesting thing that I found a great deal of understanding by and help from. And that is in his section on the most controversial of sections in his institutes, on his teaching about predestination. He says, two things you always have to remember. And that is, number one, you cannot say more than what Scripture says. And secondly, you cannot say less than what Scripture says. You have to say what Scripture says. So we may not like the idea, he says, that God is in such control that there is a reality to predetermination. But the reality is that the Scripture makes reference to it. In Ephesians chapter 1, he speaks about being predestined. And so we cannot skirt around the issue or redefine the issue. We have to just be honest about the complexity of these issues that the Scripture talks about. The same sort of lesson can be attributed to the Godhead, the person of God. Who is God? He is a triune God. And he is one God, and yet he exists, just not manifest himself. I know oftentimes we use that phrase, but technically, theologically, that's inaccurate. He exists As three persons, all co-equal, all co-existent, all omniscient, all omnipresent, all omnipotent. And so when, when I shared a little bit about this some weeks before, I said the tendency is for people to object to this. And so they will object to it in one of two ways. They will say what you're talking about is a tritheistic God. Three gods. And my point was that the scriptures affirm the oneness of God too much for him to be three. So we said this morning, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. He is one. And so he is too one to be only three. Which means we do not believe in tritheism. We do not believe there are three gods. We believe there is one God who exists as three persons. But on the other hand... God is not so one that he isn't three. There are religions that do not believe in monotheism. They are monistics. So Islam is not a monotheistic religion, though many people think of it as such. It is actually a monistic religion. For them, God is not a relational being. He's merely a power, a force, a creative force. He is not one that is beseeched. He is not one who is loved. He is one who is prayed to. He is one who is obeyed. He is one to which its followers are merely slaves and not cherished persons. In a monotheistic religion, we have a personal God, not an abstract force. 
We have a being who knows the hairs of your head. For some, that's not very hard. For others of you, it's extremely complex. (laughs) But he knows everything about you because he is not a force. He's a person. And he is such a person that he cannot be merely three. But he is such a person that he cannot be ignored with regard to his three-person reality. So he is so three that he cannot only be one. He is so one that he cannot be merely three. Now, I know that makes very little sense, so we'll move on. But I'm trying to suggest the complexity of these things and the challenge for our words to convey as accurately as possible what Scripture reveals. The fact of the matter is we are to affirm all of Scripture. And so Deuteronomy 6, 4, God is one. And yet, as we read through all of these Scriptures, we find that God is existing as Father, Messiah, Son, and Spirit, Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is not only divine, not only a person, He is the author of Scripture. And as such, Scripture refers to Him over and over again. Yeshua is common expression for the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of truth. And so when the Scripture is revealed, it is Scripture that is true in all of its parts. Not only is it accurately true, but it's morally true. It is wrong to commit adultery whether in reality or in your mind. It is wrong. You say, who are you to say it is wrong? No, no, no. What I'm saying is the Bible, the Scripture, as authored by a holy God, gives us moral truth. It is for us not to debate its moral significance, although I think we can see it within our society. But what it is for us to do is to acknowledge it and to respond to it. As Francis Chan says in his video series, we are to follow him. And so we must follow him in all respects. So scripture teaches us, how do we use our words? What kinds of words do we use? Are they words that are destructive? Are they words that are demeaning? Are they words that are uncouth? Are they words that are unsound? Are they words that we would not use in certain instances that we take liberty to use in others? That is simply wrong, unholy, and not in keeping with God's word, which is the word of God, who is authored by the spirit of truth. And so what we have in his, the word of God is truth. And what did Yeshua say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, the word of God will bear testimony to him, even as the spirit of God bears testimony and glorifies our Messiah. So how does the spirit glorify Messiah? We shared this last week. Number one, he teaches about Messiah. He unfolds the word of God to us that we might understand him about all to which all scripture points. Not only does he teach us about Messiah, but he draws people to Messiah. The reason you and I have come to faith is because the Spirit of God has been gracious to us. We've come to faith not because we are smarter. I graduated fifth from the bottom of my high school class, and I came to faith when I was 17. I guarantee you it was not because of my intelligence. It was because of God's grace. It wasn't because of my morality. If you knew me before I had given my life to the Lord, you would say there is no way that individual would ever come to faith. In fact, it's not just you who would say it. I have said it. 
because not too long ago, some photographs of me had resurfaced from some old friends that they sent to me. And there was one of me standing beside a friend who was really a tall guy who was sitting on his knees to make me look sharp. And when I looked at that picture of me, I said, oh my goodness, what a poor soul. I had no idea I ever looked like that. I had no idea. And it wasn't like I'm filled with tattoos. I don't have any. But I looked so sad. I looked so lost. I looked so, uh, you know, there was no hope. But the Lord took hold of me in those early years of my life. And he has transformed me. Take time, a lot of time. But the point is, he draws us to the Lord. It wasn't because I was an upright, moral person. It wasn't because I was a wise, informed, intelligent individual. It was because God was gracious to me. And all I could say is, thank you, Lord. I'm so grateful that I have eternal life. Not just for the future, but one that has impacted me since I've been 17 years old. You have no idea of how that has saved me from myself over the years. I mean, when I think I was 17, I think, Andrew, you could really, you know, rejoice in this. You were like an infant, (laughs) you know, you were just saved, you know, and in years to come, you know, when you're 61 years old, man, you're going to look so holy and so great, you know, and those of us who've come to the Lord later, you got to be really careful with your life. Because if you've lived 40, 50, or 60 years in the world, why do you think in 10 minutes it's all going to disappear? There is a world that has to be taken out of us. And those who've come to faith longer, we need to be utmost careful with our lives. I mean, we all need to be careful. But let's be real about the realities of life. If you spent a life in such sin, don't think it just passes out of your body like this. It takes time. It takes the work of the Spirit of God. And you need to be yielded to Him every single day. Some people even need to have support groups. Some people need support systems. Because it is that destructive sin is. But He teaches us about Messiah. He's drawn us to Messiah. And He conforms us into the image of Messiah. Whatever goodness we see in each other, it's Messiah that is seen in us. So the Holy Spirit is the author. And now we talked about the immersing work of the Spirit of God, the baptizing work, the immersing work. It's a Jewish idea. We talked about it last week. But there's seven references to this that we talked about. There's, and five of them are stated in the past about the future. John is those first four in which John says that he, I'm unworthy to untie the uh, latchet of his sandal. He will baptize, he will immerse with fire and with water. So four times we have that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is recorded saying that each time. But he's telling us what will happen. Doesn't tell us what it will look like, doesn't tell tell us how it will happen, only that it will happen. And then in Acts chapter 5, Yeshua says the same thing. He tells him, remain in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of my Father. And so that, too, is stating what will happen. If I wanted to use theological language, it is prophetic in nature, but it's future. But in Acts chapter 11, there's a question that comes to the floor of this conference of believers. And all of these believers are Jewish. And they're talking about the fact, you know, these Gentiles are cashing in on this Jewish thing. This is not right. This is our thing. Who are they to be imposing themselves onto our thing? They have Zeus. We have Yeshua. 
They have the Greeks. We have the prophets, you know. And but Peter stands up. He says, but, you know, God had spoken to me, told me to go to Cornelius, share with him. And the very same thing that happened to us. He's referring to what happened in Acts chapter two. I saw happen to them. This was a historic statement about what did happen. And it's an apologetic statement. He's using this to say the Gentiles can experience everything fully as we Jews can. There's no difference with regard to spiritual treasures that God has for us. Paul will later say there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free. With regard to the work of justification, declaring us righteous before God, everyone gets declared the same way, by faith in Messiah. There's no difference. Hallelujah is right. So this is a historic stating of what did happen. So of our seven references, six of them are about the past. Only one describes for us what the immersing work of the Holy Spirit is. That's Paul, and that's what his calling is. That's why he's the champion of our faith in many respects. He is the disseminator of our ideas. He is the theologian of Messiah. He's telling us what we need to know about the whatness of what had transpired and what it all means. So his statement in 1 Corinthians 12 is what I refer to as didactic. It's teaching us. It's explaining to us now what happened. So what did happen? He said, all of us have been baptized into one body by one spirit. So first of all, there's a unity factor that we are immersed by the spirit into one body. We are identified by the Spirit of God with Yeshua himself. And as we are identified with him, we're identified with one another, and that's the unity. The unity is not because we're together. The unity is because we are connected to him. And that's why the most common phrase in Paul's writing is en Christos, en Mashiach, in Messiah. Over and over again, in Messiah. We are connected to him and by Virtue of that connection, we're connected to one another. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And thus, we are united to him and one another. Therefore, we should work for unity. We need to work toward oneness. We need to preserve the unity of our family. And that's why there is such challenges for those that would bring division into the body. That's why divisiveness is spoken of so sternly by Paul. And that's why they speak about putting people outside the body because of its divisiveness. It destroys what it is that Messiah came for. Remember, this is his prayer, that they, believers, might be one as we, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, are one. And so where there is a disruption in that work, God is greatly affected by this. And as a consequence, so are we. And so we are to be one. The purpose of the immersive work of the Spirit of God is to make us one. The second thing we're told is that it benefits all believers. We have all been immersed into one body by one Spirit. All of us. And if there is a congregation where I, if I was to walk through it, I would suggest, no, not that one. No, not that one. It would be the congregation at Corinth. Talk about divisiveness. I'm for Paul. I'm for Apollos. I'm for I'm for Yeshua. To think about the Apostle Paul saying, I am so glad I did not immerse any one of you. I mean, that's a scathing remark. For him to talk about their unwillingness to give generously and have to teach them about giving because they were stingy and they were greedy. To think about that there was a man in that congregation having an immoral relationship with his father's wife, his stepmother. 
I mean, it can't get more seedy than that. And we're not talking about on the street corner in the red light district. We're talking about in the congregation of professing believers of Yeshua. And yet he says, we've all been immersed. Those who believe in him, we've all been immersed without exception. There aren't some that are elite believers that have somehow experienced something the others of us have not. We've all experienced the same thing. We may not be as equally yielded to his work in our lives, but we all have the same opportunities that everyone else has. Nobody has been so gifted that the rest of us are left in the dust. We are as gifted as God determines. Remember what it says in Corinthians, that we are gifted according to his will, not according to our own or someone else's. He determines what gifts we have, what positions we hold, and what role we play in the body of Messiah. But we are all fellow believers, all equally immersed, all equally gifted, though differently gifted. And it's interesting that there's no command to be immersed by the Spirit. There's no command because there's no need to be commanded to do it because, number one, we have no power to do it. It's something we receive. And secondly, we don't need to be commanded because it's been experienced already. So it's not something that has to be commanded. But here's the neat thing. We want to talk about what it means now to be filled with the Spirit, which is distinct from being immersed by the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. It doesn't mean to somehow be over-bubbly. It means to be under control. I remember years ago when we had a coffeehouse ministry, there was a band called Under Control. And you know something? I didn't even realize its meaning until just right now. Under Control. That was the name of their band. Now I said, oh, I got it now. (laughs) Under the control. It just took a little while. It was only like 15 years ago. But (laughs) under control. I think I've told you, for years I'd go into a shell station, never realized it was a shell that was on the sign. You know? It's a shell. (laughs) I thought, oh, look at that. It's a shell in there. Look at it. What's wrong with you? It's always been that way. Well, uh, the Spirit of God is controlling us, or He wants to control us. So here's the thing Ephesians, here it is. Don't be drunk on wine, controlled by other things, whether it's wine or whatever it might be that's going to affect your life, that's going to affect your actions, that's going to affect your choices. He says, do not allow anything that will steer you away from the spirit of God controlling you. And so he says, that will lead to debauchery. It will lead to carelessness. It will lead to sinfulness. It will lead to chaoticness in your life. And I dare say you could trace any kind of disruption in your life just about to the failure to be filled with the spirit. Now, we live in a fallen world, so we can't be filled 24-7, but that's the goal. That's the goal. But this is a command. Instead, command, be filled. It's something we must seek. It's something we must desire. It's something we must allow the Spirit of God to do. So what are the results of the filling? If you look at um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, here are some things that it says. You can turn to it if you like. I, I haven't done that. But here are some of the things he says in, in uh, I think it's Ephesians 5, 18, 19. He says, number one, the result is that we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What I believe that means is we become worshipers of God. That's what worship is. To speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, things about God. It's an act of worship. 
Second thing he says, we sing and make music in our heart. I think it means we're ones who give praise to God. Not only are we ones that are worshipers of God, we are praisers of God. That means there ought to be an optimism about us. I know we all struggle with the things we struggle with, but listen, it will one day end in our lives. Do we believe that or not? If we do, we should be a joyful people. This is not going to endure for all of our lives. There's going to be a time when this is going to be like a momentary tick on the clock, less than a second on the clock. I mean, eternity is a long, 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 long time. And so we need to have a sense of praise in our life, in our actions, in our demeanor. We're to be a singing people. Not only do I think it means be singing literally and actually, but singing in our heart, being a joyful person. I know for some of us, and myself included, I can really enjoy being morose. I can enjoy being a martyr. I can enjoy just sulking. I can enjoy being angry. But the scripture's telling us that when we are filled with the Spirit, here's how you can tell. Can you, do you desire to worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you being optimistic about what God is doing and what is happening in my life, or in our life? Are you persevering through the trials, knowing that he dwells in our midst? It says, Paul goes on to say, and be thankful. So we need to be an appreciative people. Everything we have has been given to us by God. The money in your bank account, God has allowed you to have that. The abilities you have, the experiences you have had, these are things we need to step back and say, God, thank you. I really enjoyed reading about, uh, what's his name, George Mueller. Remember I read that story where he prayed for the chair to come. The chair comes, he takes off his hat, folds his hands, and the first thing he does is he gives thanks. So often, Edward and I and others will talk about, you know, the service, and we'll say, gee, it was a great service. We had a load of people here. The offering was a blessing, and people are ready to serve, and we fail the next step. Let's give thanks to God. I really appreciated that about George Mueller. The first reaction, let's thank him. Let's thank him. Let's thank him. Why? Because he was a man filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be thankful. And then he says, and we'll submit to one another. You know, someone will say, would you, whatever it is, you won't even be able to get it out. Would you, all right, fine, whatever, just tell me, point the way. We're ready to serve. We're ready to submit to one another. That's the results of the the filling of the Spirit. But here's something I learned. You know, there's only 14 references in the New Covenant Scriptures about the filling of the Spirit. Only 14 times is it mentioned. Now, in Luke 1.15, it's mentioned regarding John. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And what was John's ministry? He was the herald of the Messiah. There he is. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Show forth fruits worthy or in keeping with repentance. He was a prophet of God. And so he spoke. And when he spoke, many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord their God. He had a ministry that was promised success. (laughs) Many of the Jewish people are going to come to know Messiah's issue. I wish the Lord would tell that to us, you know. But he told it to John. Of course, it could be worse. He could tell us what he told to Isaiah. Look, I'm sending you to a stiff-necked people, a hard-hearted people. They won't listen to you. But John got a nice one. Many of the people will turn to the Lord. 
Not only is John spoken of, but Elizabeth is. Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit of God. What did she do? A loud voice. She exclaims, blessed are you among women. Speaking about Mary, blessed is the child that you will bear. So Elizabeth, the mother of John, the cousin of Miriam, Mary, she's filled with the Spirit and she speaks blessing and she speaks of the coming Messiah. Zechariah, he was the father of John. And we read right away, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look what he does. He prophesies. He speaks about what his son will accomplish, and he gives glory to God. So John, Elizabeth, and Zechariah, all filled with the Spirit, and they lift up their voices. Yeshua is spoken also this way. In Luke chapter 4, he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he was sent, led by the Spirit, to be templed by the evil one. And what does he do? He lifts up his voice. It is written. It is written. It is written. I'll never forget when I saw Stephen Olford over at Calvary Baptist in 57th Street. This little man from uh, Zimbabwe, I think he was from, Rhodesia at that time. And he's a little guy, but he was fiery. One time he was put into the hospital because he had a heart attack. And his doctor prescribed that his Bible be taken from him. Because whenever he'd read the Bible, he gets so excited. I remember he was preaching on this passage, and he said, and when Yeshua went into the wilderness, he took out the sword of the Spirit, and he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Everyone said, whoa, you know. I mean, he was just that fiery of a man, you know. But he was full, Yeshua was full of the Holy Spirit when he was led into the wilderness. But what did he do? He proclaims the Word of God. That's before Shavuot, before Pentecost. During Shavuot, it says in Acts 2, all of them, speaking about the disciples that were in the upper room, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe it's referring to the 12 disciples, but they're a difference of opinion. But nevertheless, all of them were filled with the Spirit of God. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And it was other languages because there were people from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish people, that were in Shavuot, one of the three pilgrimage festivals, according to Deuteronomy 16. And they were all gathered, and in their native languages, from whatever area they were from, the 12 disciples, in all these different languages they had not learned, were given the ability to speak the word of God to them, to explain what was going on. And we hear Peter's message, particularly, and 3,000 are led to faith. Now, after Shavuot, so we saw before Shavuot, it was John, Elizabeth, Zechariah, and Yeshua. During Pentecost, it's the 12 disciples. But now look what happens after. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Here he is speaking to the crowds and particularly to the leadership of Israel. And he begins to proclaim the prophetic word of God regarding who Yeshua is. Take a look at this in 431. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is after they were imprisoned, after the believers were beaten and they... Uh, are gathered together, and look what they are. They fill with the Holy Spirit. What do they do? They spoke the Word of God more boldly than they spoke before. So now you you got to be asking, what trouble will this get them into? If they spoke pretty well, now they're speaking even more boldly as a result of the filling of the Spirit. They're in real trouble. It says in Acts 6, Brothers, this is with regard to the need for the elders to have help with regard to the early helpers, servants, the deacons. It says, choose seven men among you who are known, known. How would they know that were known to be full of the Spirit? And look at this, wisdom. Two of those deacons we know, Stephen and Philip. 
What were they known for? Well, the next chapter we will hear Stephen give testimony of Messiah. What was Philip known for? His testimony among the Samaritans. How did they know they were full with the Spirit? Because they were proclaiming God's Word. How did we know that they proclaimed God's Word well? Because they were filled with wisdom. They understood it. And they were able to apply it. And they were able to show its relevancy to those that they were speaking to. Notice this. In Acts 7, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Now we know why he gave the message he gave that led to his death and to become the first martyr. Paul was right there. Now we know the impact that the word of God and how it had such an impact on Paul. It was Stephen's word. He's standing there holding their coats, subjecting himself to supporting what these guys are doing who are killing Stephen. But it wouldn't fall on deaf ears. It impacted Paul that he would become the man of God we know him to have become. Why? Because Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And at the conclusion, he looks up. And what does he do? He draws attention once again to Yeshua. Not just, I see Yeshua. I see him standing. Not just standing. But at the right hand of God. And then he says, behold, take, check this out. Look, you got to see it. Don't miss it. He says, I see heaven open. And the Son of Man. Son of Man. That's Daniel 7. He's proclaiming Yeshua as God. That's the only place where the Son of Man is in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, where Daniel says, I saw one like the Son of Man appearing before the Ancient of Days. And his description of him is the description of God. And so he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That would get you into trouble. That would get you into trouble. And it did. And he died. But notice... The work of the Holy Spirit. Look at this. In chapter 9, Ananias is the one who's appointed to not only bring healing to Paul, but also his commission to Paul. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Yeshua has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. To what end? Just to be filled? For what purpose? To be that one who would be proclaiming the truth of Messiah, that congregations would be formed throughout the then known world, and that the scripture, the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant scriptures, would be inscribed. In Acts 11, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And how do we know he was full of the Spirit? Because he brought a lot of people to the Lord. Why? Because he spoke the word of God, the truth of God. In Acts 13, then Saul, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He looks right at Elymas, who said, who is a sorcerer, I want what you can do. I want to be able to lay hands on people so that they experience this stuff. And Paul said, may your money perish with you. He speaks the truth of God. Look at Acts 13. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We could go on and on. What do we learn from this? Those are all the references to the filling of the Spirit. That's all we have. What do we learn? Number one, the only time tongues is manifested or languages is Acts 2. And in my opinion, limited to the 12. It is not a normative experience. It was necessary for that moment because of all the Jewish people gathered from the various nations in celebration of Shavuot. And Shavuot celebrated not only the giving of the law, but the searing of the law on the hearts of those who love Messiah. It is the beginning, the inauguration of the new covenant when the law of God, which is celebrated, having been given at Sinai, is now written on the hearts of those who believe in Yeshua. And as a consequence, this miracle happens so that all Israel, wherever they are scattered, could hear those words. 
The common experience in each instance, I think you get it, is that they spoke about Messiah. That is the the distinguishing mark of being filled with the Spirit. It is we speak about Messiah with clarity and with conviction. It is then that we can point to the filling of the Spirit. That's what we see in the Bible. And notice the speaking of Messiah is the distinguishing characteristic. That's what all of them say. But that's not the only thing. It also means a change in life. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, Be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, to Father, submitting to one another. And then he talks about how we are to relate to one another. There is to be a change in the way we live. And there is a change in our values and what we consider most important. So in conclusion... Because we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I, what I want us to do is to sort of segue. So if I can have the ushers that will help us distribute these items. Just to come on up here now in the interest of time. What I'd like us to do as where the elements are being passed out. And as we're thinking about what Messiah has done for us. And the worship team can come on up. As we're thinking about what Messiah has done for us. I want us to pray that, number one, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. I want us to pray that we would be open to God controlling us and allowing his spirit to make us more and more like Messiah. I want us to pray that we would fill our hearts and minds with the word of God by being in it every day as often as we can. Not merely for intellectual understanding but for a transformation of our heart and thereby of our character. So how do we do this? Number one, the scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So I started doing some research on what it means to grieve. This is what I learned. I learned that the word grieve can mean to be in pain, to be sorrow, to irritate, to offend, to insult. We're not to offend the Spirit, not to insult the Spirit. We're not to give pain to the Spirit. We're not to irritate the Spirit. This word for grieve is the same word that's used by uh, Yeshua in John chapter 16, where he says, I know you now have sorrow of heart when he tells them I'm going to leave. We're not to cause the Holy Spirit to be sorrowed. That's what it means to grieve him. How do we grieve him? By not yielding ourselves to holiness, which is what the Spirit of God is through and through. He is a holy spirit. And to the degree to which we willfully resist his work of holiness in our lives, to the degree to which we resist submitting to one another when we are holding each other accountable for righteousness and holiness, we grieve the spirit. And he's telling us, don't do that. The second thing we're told is not to quench the Spirit. This is a term that only appears very few times. 
but it's here in 1 Thessalonians. And the meaning is not to extinguish, not to put out the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And so we have to be mindful that how we react can have an impact on what the Spirit of God is trying to do in and through our lives. You guys can start distributing things if you like. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10, this I found to be really interesting, not to outrage the Spirit. It's not, this word is not used anywhere else in the Brit HaDashah, but I did find it in the Septuagint in one place. And it's found in Leviticus 24, where the Israelites, the Jewish people, are told not to blaspheme God. That's how it's translated, to blaspheme. But it's the same word that means outrage. So we have to be careful in our walk with him that we don't blaspheme him by demeaning what God, the Messiah, has done to give his life a ransom for many. But there are two things that I think the scriptures say we can do. Those are three things we should not do. Don't grieve, don't quench, and don't outrage the spirit. But in Ephesians 4, we're told to walk in the spirit. The word walk is used in all kinds of literature to speak of to live our life in the sphere and in the empowerment of the spirit of God. And the second thing is, 2 Timothy says, the word of God is inspired for all kinds of things, for rebuke, for correction, for encouragement, for learning about righteousness. So here it is. We need to be mindful that our actions can grieve, quench, quench, or outrage the spirit. We don't want to do that. We're told to spend time in prayer so that we would walk in the spirit and to spend time in God's word that we would have the spirit's word saturate our lives so that they might be fleshed out in our living. So let's turn our attention to the word, to, to the Lord as we pray and as we prepare to partake of these elements. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word to us this morning. I know there's a great deal of information that was shared. I pray some of it is retained. Those that were taking notes, I pray, Father, they got the information that you would have them to receive. Our desire, Lord, is to experience your filling presence. That is to say, our desire, Lord, is to be controlled by you. And so help us, Lord, to do that. Help us, Father, to so walk in your ways that we would not grieve you, that we would not cause you pain, that we would not minimize or stall the work that you're doing in our hearts. Help us, Lord, not to quench the Spirit. May we follow him not extinguish his work in our lives, not to subdue it, not to snuff it out. But may we fan its flames as painful as it might be for us to experience. And we pray, Father, that we might be ones that so cherish what Messiah has done that we would not find ourselves insulting the spirit that dwells within us. Lord, teach us to pray and teach us to prioritize prayer and teach us, Lord, its importance 
May we be ready to give you thanks always. May we be ready to request whatever needs we might have. May we be ready to sing songs of praise and glory to your name. And then, Lord, help us in our submerging ourselves in your word. Lord, it's simple enough in many places for a child, complex in other places that require expert teachers. But Father, all of your word can serve to make us more like yourself. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.